0: Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hobcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit.
1: Hello Hello,
0: and welcome to the Hobcast, episode number 94. It is. Uh, As we rush towards 100, we've got big plans for the 100th episode. (gasps) We
1: do, but we're not going to tell you what it is yet.
0: No, no, we're going to keep that secret. Watch this space as they say. My name is Adrian Hobart.
1: My name is Becca Collins.
0: And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres.
1: Suspense. Thrillers. Mystery.
0: And crime. We've missed the order up this week.
1: Oh, I do it differently every week.
0: Okay, okay. Our big guest this week is Greg Moss, who is a novelist. Uh, his first novel coming out, well, actually about a week's time or so as we put this out, two, uh, yeah. two weeks' time. Yeah, it's pretty soon.
1: And it's coming here.
0: It is, yeah. We've ordered a copy. Couldn't uh, couldn't wait to get her, our hands on that. He's been a director, a playwright, and, in his own words, an encourager of writers, particularly for theatre, but uh, also set up a course uh, also, with Sussex University.
1: He's a proper Renaissance man, isn't he, because he's also been a teacher.
0: He's done all sorts, done all sorts, but he's incredibly wise and clear-sighted on what makes Good storytelling and great writing. So we really uh, took great pleasure in meeting him at Fatal Shore in Shoreham, part of Shoreham Wordfest when we were there last week. And uh, we couldn't wait to get him on the programme. And it just so happens he's the husband of Kate Moss.
1: Not the model.
0: The one with the E on the end. And uh, (laughs) she, of course, you won't need to be told, is one of the best-selling authors in the UK. And she may be joining us on the podcast She
1: may, yes.
0: So that's Greg Moss to come. I uh, can't wait to speak to him. Let's get into some news. And we had, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot going on in the publishing industry. Uh, sort of um, There
1: always is at this time of year.
0: Well, it's Frankfurt. And uh, Frankfurt is the big international rights festival, which is being held in person for the first time in umpteen years, thanks to the pandemic. Uh, the bookseller reporting that everyone's delighted to be back. And oh, it feels it's so spark, lovely,
1: isn't it? <laughs> all of that stuff.
0: Well, all very nice, I'm sure.
1: Our friend the pineapple man is there.
0: Yeah, he is. Yeah, I can't remember his name now, but uh, we met him at London Book Fair. Uh, but um, the report is is that, that Frankfurt is a lot smaller. Fewer people have been sent, and that's kind of a reflection of the wider industry at the moment and economic issues. But those that are there are reporting there's interest in right sales and all sorts of things, and they're just happy to be back together. Yeah. I can understand that, um, but I don't think it masks the general trend, which is things are a little bit of a battle. And in, on that theme, we'll move on to a story from the bookseller about the mixed reaction to publishing's very own Super Thursday, which was not last Thursday, no, the Thursday the one before, before, which is when you release the big names for Christmas. Uh, if you
1: have a big name for Christmas. Well, indeed,
0: yeah. So <laughs> um, uh, A Heart Full of Headstones by uh, Ian Rankin. Came out the latest Rebus novel. It's currently number four in the charts. Number oh, it's one. Doing well, then. Number one was David Walliams with his latest book for Christmas. Oh, number, Mr. Two, number two. Number uh, two. Won't surprise you to know it's Richard Osman.
1: Who's that then? Uh,
0: <laughs> quite. <laughs> Do you know? Actually, I'm. I'm just going to break away from this. This. This reflection Go for on it. super because I was in Waterstones in uh, Sheffield yesterday. I was accompanying my <gasps> son on a.
1: You went? Oh yeah, you did. I you bought, went to a bookshop. I
0: bought you a book. So um, I went into Waterstones. It's quite a big branch. Not a mega one, but quite a big one and then there was a you know you look at the tables and there there were um Richard Osman in paperback, and then the Twyford Code by uh, oh
1: Janice Hallett Janice
0: Hallett cover almost a complete carbon copy, and then another author with another carbon copy cream thing with you know black border uh picture of us of an animal on the front. Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, honestly,
1: it, it's it's a trend at the moment. Uh, well, it is.
0: I mean, since Richard Osman's books took off, everyone's doing it, and it just uh, just makes me sort of I don't know. I, I part of me scratches my head and thinks, can't we do something original? But it works. Clearly. It does
1: work. I mean, uh, I must admit. So Janice Hallett, I think I think you bought Janice Hallett's um, first book, The Appeal, because the the cover was intriguing. But mm. at that point, it was only Richard Osman who had a similar cover. Yeah. And it just looked like sort of a modern, well, it, it
0: was a, it was twisty, sort of cosy. Well, it was a kind of woodcut yeah, kind exactly. of feel to it. And actually, it, it wasn't as close to the Richard Osman as, as you might think, but the new one is. It's much, much closer. Yeah, I've seen know. that one, yeah. So, um, yeah, I can't remember who the other person was. Quite a famous author as well has gone down that route, uh, or rather their publisher have. So, uh, interesting. And I, I I observed, one of the things I observed was, I mean, Waterstones were just a wash with new products, um, which was great, because I was watching the staff telling each other where to put stuff
2: because
0: <laughs> they were kind of fighting. They were putting books down below the, on the tables. that They have a little shelf on uh, the bottom of the tables, yeah. stacking them up. And uh, that's fine. That's fine. It just goes to show I think that Waterstones have cleared up their backlog system yeah. and, and things are starting Good to sign. flow. Anyway, I, I go into the subject of, of Super Thursday. So lots and lots of big books came out. And um, normally Super Thursday is a big day for the retailers as well because there's a pent-up demand for said big books People rush out well, to get the when, copies first day. You when know.
1: people start doing their Christmas shopping. I mean, not people like me or people like you, but there are people who will start in mid-October thinking about Christmas presents. And it kind of, that's how Super Thursday first came about. It was, you know, the rush to get the books that they knew were going to sell for Christmas published.
0: Yeah. Well, that's just work through some of these reflections on it. So there actually were more books in hardback published this super Thursday than the previous year by, by quite a margin, actually 340 published this year, 292 came out in 2021. Uh, and this year, as we mentioned, Ian Rankin was amongst them and Alice Oseman and Julia Donaldson, who, you know, who's, a, you know, frankly, the biggest name in in um, uh, you know, young fiction, uh, in the world, probably right now. Um, and, Uh, The Edinburgh Bookshop said that Super Thursday, this is Marie Moser, had remained very strong, but they did especially well with two new picture books, Maggie O'Farrell's The Boy Who Lost His Spark and Chloe Savage's The Search for the Giant Arctic Jellyfish. (laughs) Um, Catchy name. And uh, with Halloween around the corner, Nick Sharratt's What's in the Witch's Kitchen flew out, while other adult titles, including Richard Osmond's The Bullet, The Mist and Lucy by the Sea, by El- Elizabeth Strout. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. She's she's. Um, I've read some of her books. So right, brilliant.
0: are strong sellers mm.
1: uh,
0: for the Main Street Trading Company in the Scottish Borders. The day of roll evolved around an author event, and sales were boosted by families coming into the shop during half term. Uh, well, half term then; it's half half term now. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, and apparently Richard E. Grant's a Pocket Full of happiness. His um, was 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 popular in nonfiction. But and I say, but there are some other bookshops, independent bookshops, which reflect difficult trade. Uh, for instance, the Blue Bear in Farnham. The shop's been struggling all year. Uh, this is according to co-owner Sylvia Schuller. In numbers, the thirteenth of October, twenty twenty-one, so last year was five hundred and fifty-eight pounds uh, through the till, mm. and yesterday it was three hundred and thirty-seven. She said of, of uh, Super Thursday. And footfall has dropped by roughly 50% and we're barely managing on a month-to-month basis. We sold six books on Super Thursday mm. and one of them was a leather-bound book for £30 of Chinese myths and folk tales. <sighs> the rest of the money was made up by cafe items.
1: Oh, dear. That is that's worrying.
0: And she says, if not for the dual aspect of our business, which is a tiny cafe. cafe, we would have had to close our doors already. I've not been able to draw a salary since February... And now with the high costs of electricity bills and goods and services, we're truly struggling. Mm. We were hoping for a good Christmas. However, with the daily news of retail not picking up, we truly do not know what will happen in the weeks to come. And also, despite the deluge of new titles, booksellers at Warwick Books also didn't see a particular spike on Super Thursday. And although sales picked up on the Saturday, trading was slow. In general, it's been a flat year, says co-owner Mog Harris. We're working really hard to just keep going. Publishers have brought out big titles, but with the big price increases across the board and tightening of people's budgets, I wonder if there's been a shift again to online purchasing or choosing places that offer big discounts.
1: Or well, just people aren't buying so many books. It could be as simple as that.
0: Well, I think that it's inevitable. It's inevitable with the state of things at the moment across the world that people just don't have the, the disposable income to spend on books.
1: I'll tell you what it could be. So in my case, I have quite a big pile of books I haven't read yet.
0: Yeah, and, and you're working through it now. I,
1: well, I do go into Waterstones and I think, you know what,
0: I'd don't love you... to buy
1: a book, but I shouldn't because I've still got a few to read. And I know there are a lot of people who do have mm. that issue. You know, they have the book. So that guilt of, I haven't got the money to spend on a new book, but I've got loads mm. to read at home.
0: Well, I, I'm going to redouble my – because I was in Waterstones. I bought two books, one for you and one for myself uh, as research for a, for a project I'm working on. So um, it's, it's one of those things where I just think we've got to go out and support the independent bookshops. In fact, we've got to support independent retail, really.
1: Well, I do. it. I always buy – if I can, not in Stafford because we haven't got any independent bookshops. No, we haven't. But when we go somewhere
0: – We haven't got any for miles around. No. We really haven't um in where we are but that's not true of everywhere but we really need to support um you know whatever we can but it's difficult i mean you know i don't want to get drawn into the politics because by the time you might listen to this podcast we'll have a new prime minister potentially mm-hmm. uh, but goodness knows who it's going to be but we'll we'll leave all that nonsense that's been going on last week drew my eye far too much at like you know rubbernecking a car crash um watching events in westminster last week was just extraordinary but uh, on another subject, and I suppose it's a related subject, is that, you know, clearly publishers in this sort of environment are looking for surefire winners.
1: Oh, well, they are. They're a business at the end of the day. And what are you going to do? You you think of an idea that's going to sell you m- more product with a lower budget, you're going to go for it?
0: Well, I suppose so. I mean, look, they, uh, there's been a trend. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast a number of times and that Richard Osman is a good example Uh it basically you know if you can get a celebrity to put their name on a book whether they've written it or not it's going to have a much much stronger chance of of selling and this has been particularly true in children's fiction in recent years david walliams obviously is the uh, the flagship bearer for the for that particular Phenomenon.
1: Quite a few of them have done it. They but, haven't but, they. Uh,
0: but anybody who's been on the comedy circuit and has a reasonably well known name within adult comedy circles has been writing kids' books. Mm. They have. And, uh, you know, like Julian Clary and Joe Brand and people like that are p- popping up everywhere. David Baddiel, you know. And I'm not saying they're bad books necessarily. Derm- they might be very Dermot- good.
1: Dermot O'Leary wrote a children's book. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so let's add to that list with Jamie <laughs> Oliver and Jerry Hallowell Horner. I, i.e. ginger spice. <laughs> um, they've become the latest celebrities to announce new children's books. Um, with experts saying there is no sign the celebrity-authored children's book trend will slow down.
1: Oh, <laughs> it's speeding up.
0: Right. And Oliver's book, Jamie Oliver's book, is entitled Billy and the Giant Adventure. And it's based on a story he used to tell his children. Okay. It follows the title character and his friends who decide to explore the out-of-bounds waterfall woods. Billy and the Giant Adventure will be published in April by Penguin Random House UK, who will know that by the number one spot for him, uh, which also publishes Oliver's cookbooks with a sequel already scheduled for the spring of 2024.
1: I've just had a thought. I think the per- the trendsetter of this sort of uh, p- well-known people writing children's books was Prince Charles.
0: Do you think, what, the the old man in Loch Nagar?
1: And then Madonna did one, didn't she? Oh,
0: yeah, she did, yeah.
1: But at th- that point, there weren't... That many well, celebrities writing children's books,
0: no, that's true, that's true. Um, you know, and it's probably a good thing because we'd have to sort of pulp a few of them. You know, imagine <laughs> if you know your children's celebrity, like Rod uh, Rolf Harris,
1: oh, stop it, had written
0: one. <laughs> um, that might have been problematic. Oh,
1: but that does remind me, do you know, there is a book coming out, due to come out in six weeks' time, about Liz Truss's rise to power, yes.
0: <laughs> and uh, well, I thought, you know, go back onto the politics thing. So Keir Starmer at uh, opened. Prime Minister's questions. With, I gather there's a book about your, uh, you know, rise to being Prime Minister. And it's, it's out before Christmas. <laughs> is that the title of the book, or, or a statement of fact? <laughs> and of course, she was gone the next day. So that um, anyway.
1: before Christmas, yeah,
0: yeah, out before Christmas. Uh, and uh, Jerry Halliwell Horner, who is married to Christine Horner, if you're wondering where the, the double I don't know who that is. <laughs> he's the head of Red Bull Racing, um, the Formula One team. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, two book deal with Scholastic and um, the first of those books is called Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen which is due in 2023 uh, Autumn of so there'll be a time
1: for Super Thursday (laughs) absolutely
0: it's described as an adventure story about an orphaned girl who is sent to a mysterious Bloodstone Island Uh, not only to a school for extraordinary teens here we go Uh, let's throw in a bit of Hogwarts in there shall we but also a sanctuary for endangered species Oh, blimey. Tick every box. The book follows the former pop star's previous children's books. Oh, she had one before. Oh, I Who didn't knew? even
1: know that. the
0: adventures of nine-year-old Eugenia Lavender. Okay, so children's books now come out from... Here's a list of some of the, the celebrities in uh, children's good. books. good. Okay?
1: Very convenient.
0: Okay. This is just a, a sample. <laughs> David Williams mentioned already. Alicia Hi. Dixon.
1: Don't know who that is.
0: <laughs> former strictly judge, now judge on Britain's Got Talent. Right, okay. And a former singer. Or a singer. Lenny Henry.
1: Oh yes, I knew about Lenny.
0: Tom Fletcher.
1: Don't know who that is.
0: Some he's in a boy band or something. Uh Malcolm uh, Marcus Rashford.
1: Oh, Malcolm Rutherford. Excellent. Well, we knew
0: that anyway. And Meghan, Duchess of Sussex.
1: Who's that? Oh, Ma- uh Harry and Meghan, Megan. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Anyway. Right well, uh you know, we we've sort of uh, let's not dwell on this. <laughs> um anyway, that's uh, obviously a trend that is continuing with Jamie Oliver entering okay. the frame.
1: Well, here's a question for mm. you then. Say somebody famous approached us with their crime novel and it was so so. Would we publish it?
0: Of course. <laughs> 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 I mean, how it depends on the on the, the level of of celebrityness.
1: Oh, someone as famous as Jamie Oliver, say I don't know. Heston.
0: Yeah, he would write a good one though.
1: No, but this this well, okay. I
0: think. I think he would do <laughs> you see, if I were with working if we were working with Heston Blumenthal, I'd be inventing new ways of killing people through cookery or something like that. Oh we uh, could
1: do a collaboration with Brian, yeah. couldn't he?
0: Yeah, he could. would be brilliant. <laughs> anyway, um yeah, that's a that's a that's a, a possibility. Anyway, that is uh, the news for this week. So let's um let's get into the news. we'll talk about our our plans our, our and news, our, yeah. and, our, and our news such as it is. Um, a little later but let's talk to greg moss who as we mentioned has done many many things but um, i suppose number one of the thing is being an encourager of writers which he will go on to explain how and why but he really has made a big impact particularly in getting people from unusual backgrounds into writing for theatre And this is currently is being run through the Criterion Theatre, which is in Piccadilly Circus, one of the the great theatres. It's run by Charitable Trust. And uh, this has been going for seven years. And it's, uh, you know, for the writers involved, they don't pay a thing, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, it's great, isn't
0: it? So uh, fundraising going in behind that. But uh, what what struck us when he was on a couple of panels was just how clear-sighted his thoughts were on what makes great writing. And so uh, we didn't hesitate to get him onto the show. So let's speak to Greg Moss. One of the great pleasures, Rebecca, of going to a festival like Shore and Wordfest and Fatal Shore is meeting new people, isn't it? I mean, that's why principally we go to these things. Totally. And we met Greg Moss uh, at the back of the the, the hall. And, Greg, you made a massive impression on us on a number of fronts, not least on stage where you imparted some amazing advice, but also uh, just put us at ease because we always go to these events slightly feeling that... um, What's that sense of...
1: Well, imposter syndrome. Exactly
0: what i was yeah. going to say. Imposter syndrome sometimes when we go in there because we're quite new publishers and... Well, although, we're
1: actually both introverts as well. Yeah,
0: that doesn't help either. So you put us at ease and we, we thank you for that. Thank you. It was, it was
3: a complete pleasure to meet you. And just on that thing about being introverted or imposter syndrome, I always think that we're, we're all in that room together for the things that we know about. Me, hopefully, the book that I've written, the book yep. that I'm about to write you about uh you what you're looking for as publishers uh both from the you know the inspiration and the professionalism of the authors but also the markets you're selling into if anybody asks us any questions those questions ought to be about things that we
0: know the answer to absolutely that that's so true and and i think that's partly why we go to these things because there we are in amongst the people who we want to go and engage with our books and our authors and and Uh, become part of their lives and it's it's always very instructive and actually the more you go around the country you see the the themes emerge but also the regional differences but Greg um, it was great to to meet you because you have such an amazing career story uh, and a story to tell really but we're, we're talking to you just ahead of the publication of your first novel which is extremely exciting. Uh, And that, of course, is The Coming Darkness, which is coming out. He's already ordered it. Yeah, I have ordered it this morning. I I can't (laughs) wait to read it. (laughs) Happy (laughs) days.
1: he got one guaranteed sale this morning.
0: Which is amazing. But, I mean, what I wanted to ask you first and foremost um, is that reading the blurb, it sounds like a really ambitious, big thriller. So what were the challenges... When you had, you know, you had your concept for your main character and the sort of ringer that you're going to put them through to, to manage all of the, the scope of the book is quite something. So how did you go about that?
3: Well, I hope you still think that when you've read it, but I'm going to run yeah. with this idea and just say that my background as a theatre writer, and you can see me in my office with many of my theatre pot- posters on the wall behind me, um, your, your play is made up of distinct scenes, distinct scenes of drama. And surely your book should be the same. I don't want too much uh, meandering internal reflection. I don't want too much description for the point of description. I want the dramas that my character's involved with to reveal the imaginary world of my novel a little bit at a time. One of the things that I said to in answer to one of the questions from the hall, a very good question, which is similar to yours. How do you keep it all in your head? How do you how do you manage? Well, my answer is you don't you seldom need to be thinking about the novel as a whole. You should be involved in the specific scene of drama that you're writing. And each scene of drama should lead to a new narrative question. What happens next? Yes. Can I go just one step further as well? And I think this is a thing that perhaps is uh, sometimes neglected in the in the teaching of writing. And it, the what happens next thing, if the reader reads on, well, they're going to find out the answer to that, aren't they? It's. Um, I wouldn't say it's not a superficial thing, but it is just keep going, you will find out. On the other hand, the reader thinking about why is the character doing and saying these things is a much deeper form of suspense. So what next is simple and you must have that to get your reader to turn the page, but to get them to really engage imaginatively, you want them thinking about why are they doing this? And of course the promise is that that will be
0: elucidated much later on. Right. And um, that is, such a difficult art i think that you know i think that is the in in a nutshell the difference between someone who can write a series of events that appear to be a plot and actually create an experience for the reader take you deeper <laughs> involve them make them fill the gaps
3: so i, I sometimes use this example of a, a, an, and i try and explain the difference between a story which is just a a bunch of things that happened and a plot. And I'll tell people about how, oh yes, well, I got up early and I was in a rush and I spilt the coffee and I went outside and got in the car and I got stuck in traffic and I shouted at all the other drivers, but eventually I got here and here I was talking to you. And it's just a sequence of events. But but what if I got up early and I spilt the coffee and I kicked the dog and I got in the car and I got stuck in traffic, I shouted at all the other drivers, I parked badly, I ran in, I said hello, and I had a heart attack. It it went somewhere, right? It's yes. all of that stress and angst that if I told that story fully, it might take 1,500 words for the whole chapter, and it goes somewhere. And yeah. you don't know where it's going, but when it gets there, the reader should think, oh, yeah, but, of course, they didn't
0: see it coming.
1: Yeah, it made me sit up when you said that. And then I thought, what what happened next?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things that you describe yourself as is, uh, what was the exact phrase? I don't know. You know, you enable no, um, uh, um, an encourager of,
1: encourage writers. of writers. That's it.
0: And, and that I love um, because there aren't enough of us around in a way. Um, <laughs> I think there's an awful lot of people, there's a whole empire of people who think they know what good writing is and are quite happy to tell people that that's not good. But to encourage <laughs> writers, and in particular your work currently with the Criterion Theatre in London in terms of, creating a uh, an environment where people without uh, from all backgrounds i mean i mean all backgrounds this is long before it became fashionable and every single publishing house had a prize to invite people who were from disadvantaged backgrounds and from alternate you know from diverse backgrounds to get into writing you were doing it long before it became a a thing that everyone had to be seen to be doing so what's motivated that in you to to, to go to that much trouble to 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 find the funding to create that scheme
3: so the uh, the uh, the answer is um loving theatre to start with and wanting to see more diverse voices represented not just in the wonderful fringe theatres where i started my theatre career 40 years ago mm. but also on main stages i was talking to a very close friend of Who's uh, now deceased, sadly. Who um, this must have been nine years ago. He was on the board at that time of the Criterion Theatre Trust. And you, you might not know, but um, many of London's theatres are actually run by charitable trusts, uh, who and they have educational missions and other, and and they fulfil them in different ways. And. Um, I went to see the managing director of the Criterion Theatre Trust, Fiona Callahan, and I said, if we if we run at this time I already had a, a lot of workshops behind me. I was, you know, a well-qualified encourager of writers. So <laughs> I had a, a certain bona fides myself, but I so I could say to Fiona Callahan, if we bring together groups of playwrights on stage at the Criterion and give the give them the experience of devising their new work in that environment, they're far more likely to write something that fits that that bigger space that can cope with having 400, 700, 900 people paying attention to it. Um, I think if, if, if writers don't feel welcomed in those spaces as creatives, not just as audience members, but as creatives, that's unlikely to happen. Um, where this led was um, <clears throat> um, a first set of six writers and it went very well that led to another set of six writers because we proved ourselves that led to us putting on showcases in the autumn of each year only interrupted by coronavirus to mm-hmm. um, to a, um free showcases n- n- that no money changes hands this is a It's a charitable enterprise fulfilling the mission of the Criterion Theatre Trust and we've got to the point now where I've had at least 120 writers through the Criterion New Writing Programme. I'm currently recruiting writers for 2023. We've employed 50 or 60 actors who we feel we, we give a training in story development and editorial comment to as well. And, of course, from all of those showcases, uh, lots of directors have had the opportunity to put on extracts in that wonderful West End uh, theatre.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And what what have you gained from your own art, from working with these new voices? What What, what has it given you in terms of the way that you approach your work?
3: I think being able to be an encourager of writers is a knack and the knack that you need to develop is the knack of invention whatever the writer comes up with I can say oh well this could have happened earlier this could happen later Um, I'll I'll, I'll come on to the how it's benefited me in just a moment but just to say and again this this is something I think we all know but we don't always articulate which is um, the reader's engagement in our, in, our, in our novels is principally with, well, obviously it's with the words on the page, but in addition to that, it's the gaps between the things that we express on the page. That's where the, the reader engages, wonders why, as I was talking about earlier, but also looks for narrative connections that haven't yet become apparent. Yes. It's in the counterpoint of, of a sequence of events. I sometimes use a wonderful example from Hamlet where the audience knows that Claudius, who murdered Hamlet's father, is going to pray. But the audience has been told that it's not going to work. He's tried before and he he just can't communicate. He's lost faith because of this terrible crime he's done. And then while he's praying, Hamlet comes in and he says, now I could kill him. But if I did, he'd go straight to heaven. Yes, mm-hmm. but Hamlet decides not to kill him after all, and off he goes. And then Claudius stands up, and he says, my words fly up. My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. And so nobody says out loud. Nobody explains what that means out loud. It's just the sequence of events. And what's meaningful in it is that Hamlet could have killed him, and that would have been the end of the play, but he didn't.
2: mm because
3: of that mistake that he made, because he only had partial information. So that's where I was going with this Adrian. There's these two things. Um, The information we give the reader is always partial because it's just that moment in time, that point of view that we're writing. And we make a promise to our readers that later scenes will give you additional information that will help you to understand what you didn't understand at the time. Yes keeps them engaged. That only really works if you have a fertile imagination, if you have the knack of invention, and that for any particular scene, um, perhaps an actor on stage at the Criterion has said, I'm not sure about uh, my role in this scene. I felt like a spare part. And I need to come up with not one, not two, but three different ways of responding to that and the reason that i have to come up with at least three different ways of responding to that perceived issue is because i mustn't come up with one and cling to it as the drowning man clings to his lifeboat <laughs> i must come up with several and then say to the to the writer or another better idea that you can think of mm.
1: yes mm. Yeah. So it's got the flexibility it's got to have the flexibility of going in a, di- a direction
3: yes and coming up with multiple ideas makes all the ideas um, less valuable, but the process of
0: finding them easier.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Understood. I mean, it's, in, it, it's very similar. I mean, I, I'm going to cast back to my career in, in journalism at the BBC. And so one of the most enabling things that I ever went on, I mean, you get some on courses the whole time, and most of the time now, I'm told it's to, you know work as a journalist that's going to influence and um, to protect the environment or for, for instance you know all the sort of zeitgeist things that we're supposed to be worried about but when they actually were doing training in terms of being a creative leader which I went on this is about 15 years ago the principle of yes and in a meeting was passed on now I'm sure this is really the, the foundation of, of a lot of good collaborative creative work in the theatre and in many
1: creative
0: exactly but in the bbc when i joined it was all about knocking each other down you'd have your morning meeting and everyone would just tear into each other and say well that's a stupid idea that was in the guardian yesterday we can't do that angle you know it was never yes and but once i started employing this as a regular thing and changed the culture it doesn't half improve the creativity that everyone is saying They're not allowed to say no, but they're always to say yes. And, and then we could do this. And at some point out of all the ideas that come out of that positive environment, the right one comes forward. The the, the most impactful and creative way forward. Agreed.
1: Because you're not blocking their ideas, are you? You're, You're allowing them.
0: I think it's creating that environment where, because I think I, th- I think the theatre has a lot to teach life, really, in the sense that I used to watch the theatre study students when I was at Sixth Form College doing their warm ups, <laughs> and just laugh. Frankly, um, I did a little bit of am dram, but you know, at school, but I I didn't understand what they were trying to achieve, and I could see them doing all their trills and their you know flopping up and down yeah. and, and all that stuff and stretching, and not realise what they were trying to achieve i just thought it looked a bit if i don't mind i mean i think we can get away with this in podcast i thought it was wanky i
1: thought you were going to say that
0: that was the cynicism of the 18 year old me now i understand the importance of all of these things of creating an environment i think we're trying to do that with our with our company but in your field when you're working with, with new authors um it must be you know, to to create that environment when you you get your new intake for twenty twenty three, when you you know you get them sat down and they're in the criterion and workshopping, there'll be some there, I imagine. I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but there'll be some, I imagine, who don't have the confidence to come forth immediately. And so, your job is to create that environment where they can and their their voice is valued. And that's not easy, is it?
3: I think two things. Um... No, three things. First one, you're, you're describing the theatre studies uh, students trying to find uh, a, a state of mental and physical preparedness where they will have what we call flow, right? Yeah. That's what, that's what they're looking for.
0: Absolutely. In my,
3: in my room, at the, on stage at the Criterion, I want the same. That means I need to provide enough stimulus that the writers are reassured about what they 're trying to uh, what i 'm asking them to do, and that it 's within their reach, and then we will build on it. Do you remember when we were in the hall at Fatal Shore in Shoreham yeah we had a there was a moment when somebody asked a question about um, um, that thing you mentioned earlier on about like looking at your novel as a whole, and it was part of the answer I gave was what I said before that you you really are focusing on individual dramas and then you add them all together and that makes a novel so and we went on somebody else took that question on and they said that the, the thing that sometimes upsets our process is that we start thinking like architectural critics about our own novels as if it's something that's already been published and we're writing um in the times literary supplement a considered appreciation of all the clever things that we did in our writerly skillful way, whereas when we're writing a novel we have to behave as builders and we have to build it from the foundations up one brick at a time until finally we've got a house. And um, That also means that you have to be inside it, doesn't it? You have to be inside the novel and you must resist the temptation to be often standing outside looking at it from a distance. Yeah.
0: So. I think, well, it's very easy. I'm taking that analogy. It's very easy to give uh, an idea for a novel a curb appeal. But what you're, I mean, because we get propositions and, you know, we get submissions, even though we're closed at the moment, we still get them, uh, where someone's come up with, it's, an, it's a good angle. You think, right, okay, I can see that. I can see that, you know, as a one-line tag on the front of a novel, I can see the cover, I can see the principle that you're trying to illustrate, but what they haven't done quite often is all the foundations, the plumbing, the electrics, uh, let alone putting in any soft furnishings. It's um, basically uh, a
1: new build. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, it, it, what it is, is a cardboard cutout. Yeah, a new yeah. build. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember the Superman movie
3: where Lex Luthor bought up lots of desert land in California yeah so that he could put a nuclear bomb in the San Andreas fault yes and all the coastline would fall into the pacific and he would have all the shorefront yes so that works doesn't it because it's basically it's it's live action movie but it's actually a cartoon story the mm-hmm. we don't have to contemplate the fact that it would be a nuclear wasteland and all the people would get leukemia and you
2: know,
3: <laughs> so on Because, it, and also it's got, standing behind it, it's got these accepted characters. There's Lois Lane, there's Superman, there's Lex Luthor, there's the other people from from the canon. But of course, the difficult thing that um, somebody who was writing a contemporary thriller with that idea in it would also have to sell you all of these unique and original characters that that high concept novel was, was built with because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? The the plumbing and the stairs, they're actually the characters in the novel with their competing objectives and wants and desires. Yes. Um, it's, what I'm saying is, even if you've got that really cool idea, that high concept idea, Jack Jordan spoke very well about the high concept idea on Saturday. Um, and he obviously is a, a novelist who was self-published and then moved into mainstream publishing later on. Um, he he talked about the fact that the the high concept can get somebody's attention but then it has to be grounded in relatable human experience is that right yes.
0: i think that's right i think that i mean I, your emphasis on character is, is so important here because this is where a lot of things fall down and um, i i i have to say that i i had a little dip into your book, which you wrote in 20 or was published in 2014, Crafting Your Plot, a 60 minute um, masterclass. And it is I did 15 <laughs> minutes of it. And and I came rushing into Rebecca about six times in those 15 minutes ago. You he did. Here's another one. Here's another zinger. Here's another thing that you know <laughs> you've articulated all the things that concern us when we see a manuscript. Now, we're b- great believers that if you get the characters right if you bring them to life you make them relatable you give them that motivation they've got to be
1: the emotion yeah
0: well not so much the emotion as much as they need to be after something they need to be competing against each other um they need to be interacting with each other this is the key to any good fiction the other things you know a cracking headline idea uh great set pieces all the stuff that uh, you know those are important but if you don't get the characters there if they're just flattened and wooden and unbelievable you're dead it just doesn't work
3: yeah you have to you have to have deep sympathy for them
2: don't you
1: yeah yeah yeah, absolutely you have to put yourself in their position and, and you you are constantly thinking well what would i be doing if i was doing if i was in that
3: of course in in the coming darkness because i'm set a little bit in the future and in this rarefied atmosphere of the french security services the um i you've you've also i i as writer i've got to tune into a particular way of thinking that infects those sorts of institutions and so i'm very i'm very fortunate that in uh, a previous life, I was an interpreter, and I worked in Paris in some of these international organisations, and that gave me. Um, uh, it meant that as I was writing, you know, boardroom scenes and conference room scenes and so on, which makes it sound really boring, doesn't it? But as I was writing those scenes, it felt natural to me, and I. Um, I think there's. The the way in which people in those organisations speak almost always guardedly, even if they've got nothing to hide, they 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 tend to be quite non-committal. In fact, just as a small digression, when again in a previous life, when our children were small, I trained to be a secondary school teacher so that, to sort of tie up all the loose ends of family life. And I was in my training, I was in a Roman Catholic uh, comprehensive school in Hackney. And at the end of the teaching practice, I said to one of the nuns who taught there, do you have any advice for me, you know, going forward that I could mm-hmm. take away? And she looked at me and she said, never say yes in a corridor. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? And I think that's how, that's how spies think. Never say yes in a corridor. Never say yes ever. Say, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. interesting. We'll revisit that. Or, yes. You know, and so on.
1: Anyway, yeah exactly
3: yeah. feeling at home in the world of your novel is really important and that's like a step that that's like um so there's the 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 empathy with the characters but there's also feeling at home in the situations that you're trying to depict
0: yes yeah that's very true and you know you've sent another echo off in my mind which was uh a, a boss of mine when i became a manager said look there's a simple way to manage in the BBC, and that is to simply say no. <laughs>
2: um,
0: no matter what the request is, just say no. Well, and then you can correct yourself later, but never say yes because uh someone will stop you from doing you you may say yes to someone puts a proposal in front of you to go to I don't know, travels to America to do a story, which was what we did a lot of because I was in the World Service. And uh and I was encouraged to say no because there was always a financial justification for saying we can't afford to do that. And I refused to take that approach. I hated it.
1: Well, you should have have used the the Japanese phrase that they use, and it translates literally as that might be a little bit impossible. Because I don't actually know. Go
0: on, say it in japanese
1: you always say um cracky if i can remember tabonchotto uh skoshi uh do moimas." i think it might be a little bit impossible very good very
0: good <laughs> very good is, is, is japanese one of your um, inter- I hope not. <laughs> areas of interpretation no. no it's not no i
3: i worked um i was what was called in french and what that means is that you try trans- you interpret from french to english or and from English to French, that sort of both directions. And um I I I also um learned Spanish and I, I eventually worked a little bit in Spanish, never very effectively, I don't think. Um and the um it, it's a it's a pathway to other cultures, isn't it? Language learning. It's mm, it, it, it's again it's again a story of empathy and understanding of others.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, because so I lived in Japan for two years and you know, culture that you might think is very different from the British culture. There are lots of similarities. The way that they, like I say, they won't give a direct answer because they don't want to embarrass you by saying no (laughs) or commit themselves by saying yes. So everything is sort of a level of, you know, what they're saying, but they won't say what it actually means. (laughs) We do.
3: Can I try and bring all of all of this back into the writer confronted by empty screen question as well? Because yeah. there, I I as it happens, I write each day from six thirty to about nine thirty, maybe ten o'clock. And that's it for my creative writing day. And the rest of the day will be business and family life and everything else. So I bring that same attitude that all three of us are discussing, I try and bring that to my own personal party where I am alone with my characters and my screen and my keyboard, that yes, and also, um, if he knows this now, is there a scene I should write earlier for my hero where he didn't know it? See, that's, that's really fulfilling, isn't it? Because, mm-hmm. yes, and, and that's the way in which I think you can build a novel which is rewarding and complex but still only be thinking about one thing at a time. An example of that might be, I'm working on the uh, follow-up to The Coming Darkness, which is called The Coming Flood. You won't be surprised to hear. In The Coming Flood, there's a point at which Alex, my hero, Alexandre Lamarck, he discovers, he tries to get a a rental car and they're all bricked. In other words, they're all undergoing a software update all at once. And because this is 2037, there's no manual way of stopping that and making them all drive. And he says, but isn't that stupid that they should all do the software update simultaneously? And that, of course, makes him think about the thing that happened two weeks before when one of his colleagues said the same thing about he was in another country doing another desperately exciting and dramatic spy type thing. Mm-hmm. And he connects the two things, and he thinks, "Well, this is meant. This is not a random event." Mm. And of course, that happens really in life, don't they? <laughs> but I, but I wrote the earlier scene after the later scene. Yeah, I realised that I could seed that idea with what seemed like a neutral, random event in the story that becomes meaningful later. Yes, and, and that, of course, is because I didn't say to myself. Greg, this thing about the cars all being bricked is really boring. My editorial brain kicked in and said, how can we make the most out of this? How can we make this
0: meaningful? And that was the answer. Absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, It took until lockdown to get to the point where you could write your novels. Yes. Uh, uh, Why was that? Uh, was it because you were so involved in the theatre at the time? And, and, that and was up, all gone, country, yeah. Or, you know, was that was that the opportunity?
3: So, first of all, it was family life, looking after uh, Kate and I, my, my wife Kate Moss, and I have looked after three parents in our home for more than 20 years now. Uh, her parents have both died. My mum is still alive. Then, of course, two children to put through school and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of whom uh, I home-educated for four years. Wow. That's its own, you know. Uh, Then, of course, working alongside Kate and all of her activities, supporting her work with the Women's Prize for Fiction um, and beginning to um, develop this freelance career in story development, which is what I call it, Adrian. I Mm. I always call it story development because I'm not editing, am I? I'm making things up, which I hope make your idea bigger and better and if you don't like it fine i've got another idea coming along behind so um uh then when our children left home i had the opportunity to go back to my very first career which was theater and uh, i think i added them up the other day i think um I, i wrote and produced or other people produced 25 uh, original scripts of mine some of them written in collaboration some with my composer partner because I also write um, musicals and plays with songs um, and then as you were saying Rebecca it all suddenly became illegal <laughs> to come together in a room and watch a play and so I had to find a new direction because I couldn't um I couldn't sit at my computer each morning at six thirty doing the crossword could I I had to find something else was, yeah. in fact the writing of of novels Thank
2: you.
0: Thank you and all of the things that have led up to that oh, the different formats you know the writing plays and and everything like that, and also of course, sharing the journey that Kate has gone on, this hugely successful journey um but it must it, did, how did you get i mean because my my feeling is and I'm sitting here trying to sort of judge if I was in that position, what would I be feeling I think it would be quite overwhelming in the sense that, you know, you're married to one of the most successful novelists in the UK. Um, that's quite a challenge then to go into that world as well, isn't it? Or did, did that not cross your mind?
3: But, you but you know, when I write a play, it might not be as good as Hamlet. <laughs> but it might still be worth something. Yeah, no, so, I'm not saying it <laughs> no, wouldn't be. No. no, I, I realise, you, you probably can't quite see, but there's a lovely poster on the wall for a show... Um, that was the first show um, that uh, we, that I put on out of lockdown, which is called The Unquiet Grave. Yes. And it's a one-act play based in a traditional Suffolk folk song, and it tells a story of, um, of family life, and in part through these, this sequence of songs, brilliantly performed by two actresses that I've worked with um, four or five times in you know, professional shows. And um, the, um, the, idea, the idea for it is not completely novel, um, and The Unquiet Grave is somebody else's traditional song, as were the other songs in the show. But the way in which I put them together is, for better or worse, a product of my individual unique sensibility mm. and sense of dramatic structure and the the test is isn't it that when people come to see the show whether they applaud or leave in droves Mm. (laughs) and happily they stayed and they applauded Mm. so great but but that is what we've that is really in the end the only thing that we've got to sell isn't it our own unique sensibility and uh, our intuitive sensibility and our own objective sense of structure uh, in storytelling; those mm-hmm. two things together.
0: Well, clearly, this this first novel is is uh, uh, you know uh, an international thriller, and and you know it's it's I'm very excited because this is this is my
2: yeah my he, world. He'd...
0: I love this sort of thing, <laughs> and and I see a comparison in the previews to *I Am Pilgrim*, which it gives me very excited. You've got the two you've got the novel out and the, the one to follow what else are you working on at the moment in terms of novels
3: i'm i have another novel sequence that i started oh before coronavirus i don't know if you recall back in let me see so february 2020 one of the very last international writing festivals to take place was the emirates airlines festival of literature in dubai that um kate and i have attended many times it's i think it's perhaps in its 15th year, something like that. Mm-hmm. At that festival, I did a couple of platforms with a close friend of ours, Luigi Bonomi, who is a wonderful agent, Luigi Bonomi Associates. And he and I said to one another, oh yes, that's a really good idea for a sequence of novels.
2: <laughs>
3: so in my Spare weekends. (laughs) No, I mean, what it was was in in my enforced isolation and unemployment of lockdown. um, Once I um, had completed that first draft of The Coming Darkness and uh, it had not yet been sold to a publisher, so I wasn't working through all of those other drafts, you know, the structural edit, the line edit, the copy. I began writing another sequence and I shared, I think 20, 25,000 words with Luigi. And I said, is this, is this what you meant? And he said, yeah, more or less, but don't do this and do do that. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So that, which is has not yet been announced by our publisher, that will be the next project. Um, and that's a separate series set at a different moment in time with a different hero. Fantastic.
1: So do you think you're now hooked on novel writing?
3: Yes, it's immensely satisfying. Um, and also, Rebecca, because um, my, my approach is, um, is, is, is focused on getting that, that the complex mechanism of plot down and sorted. So I don't second guess myself in that first draft. Do you remember when we, we were talking about first draft for me, then second draft, I'll show to Kate, my wife. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, so I don't second get, I I just need the whole story down. I'll tell you just a little story. A few years ago, I was working with a writer writing a wonderful book set in the Arab Spring. And she found it very hard work. And it took her years. And she said to me, she described one day, she said it was like, I had to carve every word in stone. And then what happened, I said, because now you it it, you seem much more comfortable there and she said, yes well the moment i wrote the end it all became plastic and malleable and i could do what i wanted with it and that that was a a big moment adrian earlier you asked me what Mm. i I learned a lot from all the interactions with all the writers i support but that was a really big one get to the damn end of that first draft for better or worse yes and it will become something that you can shape and improve.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I would subscribe to that because I've struggled to get to the end of the projects I'm working on. <laughs> but I know what the end, you know, I, I have a, a, a source of in my head. I know how those things end. And actually, I think my, I might just get them down so that I know where I'm aiming. And I think what you describe in your, in, in as I say, the book that I was looking at earlier um, from 2014 you talk about a river. Life is a river, which sort of gets wider and wider, and then goes into the, the void. But actually, a book—if you're reflecting life—you actually have to reverse it, so that the the shallow waters at the start are quite wide, and then it gets narrower and deeper and faster uh, as you accelerate towards the end. And I think that's a really useful mental image that has helped me think. Right, I now know where I'm going with you know. And I've been sitting and looking at my work in progress for, for months. Years.
1: For oh, years,
0: years, years, not really, <laughs>
1: not months.
0: <laughs> I get into the flow, the flow state you talk about, and it's wonderful. But actually, it's not finishing it. I'm just adding. You've more have got and sections. More. It's
1: like a jigsaw piece with lots of the pieces missing. You're writing. Uh, it, yeah, so, yeah. And,
0: and 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 just reading that this morning took me back to my protagonist and what I needed to do to set her up properly. <laughs> that I'd rushed her into the 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 the, the, the rapids far too quickly i hadn't set up her background life the thing that she's going to have to always regret leaving oh dear Maybe. battery's running low uh <laughs> we may have to do something about that in a second but that's but that that crystallized for me in what in how you described it so it's interesting
3: isn't it how different ways of speaking respond um work differently for different people so that that image which um which i like very much of the the river the river thames for example yeah opening out into its estuary and dispersing itself into the north sea and you don't really know where the river ends and where the sea begins yes but of course in your novel it can't be like that it must narrow to a unifying climax yes this again um Fatal Shore was a lovely event. We uh, All of us who are publishing professionals, whether that's authors or publishers or bloggers, everybody, I think, very generously moved around the room and, and spoke individually to participants at the festival. And one of the participants that I was talking to was asking this very same question about how you get to that unifying climax at the end of the novel. And the yeah. way I tried to describe it was that um, if Rebecca gets what she wants, well, Adrian can't have what he wants and Greg can't have what he wants. But if Greg gets what he wants, then it's Rebecca who loses. And it's, it's exactly all, yes. all the characters are they all have skin in the game. And in those last pages, it's resolved who is successful, who is partially successful and who loses. Yes, but all in the same narrative sequence, all in the same drama. Those are the best novels, and I think also the best plays. Uh, I, I, I sometimes say to playwrights that it every at the end of the play, all the characters should be on, as in on stage.
0: Yes, and the
3: reason for that is because they should all still have skin in the game.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: you're not, right.
3: Are they really? Do they really have a home in this play? If they're not still involved in that last scene, what have they been doing?
0: Quite. Yeah, that's very well put. Uh,
1: yeah,
2: well,
3: they're, Adrian, they're bystanders, aren't they?
1: Exactly. Well, I think in that they're bystanders. And yeah. this,
0: and this is something that I, I, I think we've imparted to some of our authors. Um, you know, when we've received certain, you know, it might be the whatever numbth draft finally comes to the publisher, and we say, "Well, well," you know they're not doing anything so why are they there um, they're not adding to this and they're not a, they're not invested
3: here's another one I, which i think is really useful i don't think it was in that um little book that i wrote for the guardian um it um if you if you can uh put your book aside for a couple of weeks i don't mean yours one puts one book aside yeah, yeah <laughs> you pick it up again and as you're reading you must think to yourself is this sequence that i'm reading is it descriptive or dramatic and if it's descriptive well then you should probably fix that Mm. because the world of the book should be revealed by the dramas of the plot it shouldn't be a descriptive book which sets up dramas another way of thinking about this is I, i i often get asked about um how do you reveal the locations in the novel? Well, you reveal the locations by the characters exploring them. So, so the, it's
1: through their eyes.
3: That's right. It's through their eyes. And yes. one, way of, one way of imagining it is like um, is that they bring light to the landscape and illuminate it for the reader by their presence.
2: Mm.
3: And it, I like in, that. So if you uh, keeping either one or the other of those two things in mind, I think is quite helpful. Is this descriptive or is it being revealed? What I want revealed, is it being revealed through drama and it being revealed through drama,
0: even modest low key drama is better than none. Totally. Totally. I, I, this was an interesting thing that you you wrote early in that book. Um, and you just, you basically said, look, these are the foundation blocks, the sort of four bits that, of DNA that that make up a novel.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They are actions, emotions, dialogue, and description. And I suppose that depending on what type of book you're writing, um, actions and and dialogue will be perhaps stronger in a thriller than the emotions, though those are important. And certainly the description will be less uh, important than. Uh, or at least less prominent. I shouldn't say important. That's still important, but you have to still be—you have to still impart some of the world. But as you say, yeah. you're, you're seeing it through drama, and you're seeing it through characters, uh, which is very different from perhaps literary works, which the, yeah, will, will will disappear off into a, into a world of beautiful language <laughs> and description.
3: There is that, but we don't underestimate beautiful language. Do no, we? no, 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 not at all.
1: <laughs> I love beautiful language.
3: Um, <laughs> so a, a sort of a 19th century example might be the beginning of bleak house with the magnificent description of the fog in london mm. which is a kind of wide shot and then yes. and, and then it comes into a mid shot and then finally it's a close-up and then there we are in the john dice versus john dice trial that will never end and has blighted the family for several generations and, and so on um the um, and you could imagine a a similar sequence in a thriller where let's say that there's the I don't know the land the vast landscape of the South Pacific and then the island in the distance and then you you're realizing oh we're flying right and as we come in we can see the airport and the helicopter lands and we get out and we run and there's a sound of gunfire you're doing the same thing that Dickens did. Mm but you're doing it with, a, uh, with an action sequence which incorporates description, whereas Dickens has stepped back into the author voice and provided you with this neutral author summary of what it looks like, only eventually arriving at the action. And I think that's, that's a, a common distinction that we can see between um, literary fiction and commercial fiction commercial fiction is unlikely to do the former mm. literary fiction is um is is likely to do it
0: yeah absolutely listen we, we ought to draw this interview to a close soon because we're conscious of time um and we're so grateful to you for, for spending some time with us and obviously we're hoping to speak to kate next week which will be amazing so um we'll uh, we'll draw <laughs> some of these perspectives I, I wanted to ask you one question because of my personal connection with the place you're in chichester And a lot of your productions, I see, you know, I went through your website and and see a lot of them are developed and and performed as part of the Chichester Festival, which is a fabulous thing. And what a wonderful city it is because of the the theatre there and the connection with Sir Laurence Olivier, who said it all up, you know, who helped get the money in for the brilliant building that it is. All of those things. How much does Chichester feed back into your work, do you think?
3: Well, wherever you are, there are opportunities, aren't there?
0: So
2: mm-hmm.
3: And when I started um, writing plays, I um, n- not my first career when I was in my 20s, but this latter career, which I thought would be my last. You know, the novels interrupted what I thought would be my last career of theatre. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the first few performances of original work that I'd created had 30 or 40 people in a village hall, by the time theater was shut down by coronavirus i had sell out performances of 300 and we we with my collaborators we would taken our shows to other cities to london to manchester and so on and but you've got to start where you are and with and you've got to take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves do you remember when uh, one of the very first questions on one of the panels was about gatekeepers
1: mm, yes
2: yeah,
1: and <laughs> Joe
3: Furness was started by saying, "Well, should we really talk about it as gatekeepers?" and I said, "Well, if it 's not gatekeepers, it is bottlenecks. These are obstructions for what you want to do and and if you and if you 're not finding it easy to get an agent to get publishers to read your work." if you can't afford to go to the literary consultancy and and spend perhaps several hundred pounds on an editorial review, well, what can you do? Well, you you can go and read an extract of your work at a scratch night, Mm. you can join a writer's group, you can publish chapters online, you can go to Ko-Fi and you can say, you can read this for free, but if you like it, will you give me £2.50 to buy me a cup of coffee. You know, that lovely idea of... Yep. Uh, the one thing you don't want to do is to write and then keep it to yourself. Mm. You must find, and that was what I did in theatre, Adrian. I found mm. I found a way to, to take the first small steps and that led to other steps. And and through all of the shows that you see behind me, every uh, all the writers, all the... Not the writers, all the actors and performers, the uh, musicians. Where that was a, they were all uh, paid for their work, and they were all paid from ticket sales. And um, so that's important too. That there is, um, there's, there's what the Arts Council uh, would would call. There's a. there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a self-supporting future, you know, even if it's not right now, in the future, this can support itself. And that, that's what we want, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. So even if we're self-publishing, we want to professionalize our process of creating really well-written and well-produced books. And we want that to have an entrepreneurial
0: return. And yeah.
3: that, I think, helps with, all of, with, with our
0: focus, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it gives vital. you a goal,
1: doesn't it? it? It's
0: vital. I mean, you know, you, you can't do everything for free all life. I mean, it's just not.
1: But don't you think it's interesting, though, if you work in a creative field, whether it's art or theatre or writing or music, you feel em- almost uh, embarrassed to ask for money for your work, that you should be doing it for love. I think that's a cultural that, thing. It's a perception I, of that, isn't it? I there? think
0: that's a very UK thing. I, I really <laughs> do. I really do. I just don't think that other countries have got that hang-up. <laughs>
3: well i hope not um and um the uh, we kate and i recently went to a fest the a wonderful festival north cornwall festival um and uh it's um um it's it's not an enormous it's not like a metropolitan area it's a small rural community and i i would expect so you know we we asked for our expenses but we didn't ask for any we didn't ask yeah. for money, you know, <laughs> because yeah. we, we want that North Cornwall Festival run by the wonderful Patrick Gale to be back on its feet and successful uh, for years to come. Sure. And, and times at the moment are very
0: hard, aren't they?
2: Mm. Well, they are.
0: They are. I keep looking at my phone to see whether Liz Truss has gone yet you can't in, stop a, it. in real time. <laughs> <laughs> a real-time drama absolutely absolutely so I ought to say why my, my connection with Chichester I was a reporter there for a year I had a an office in in Saddlers Walk um the the little shopping center and uh you know near the McDonald's um and I was ex- I didn't realize my privilege at the time of where I was I think when I left and I went, moved to Brighton to become the reporter there for the BBC uh I, you know that was obvious I mean it, as someone described it um Uh, You know, I think it was Joe actually saying, you know, or whoever came down from Salt Dean. It was always the Rotting Dean or whatever. It was like the Las Vegas of the South Coast, and it (laughs) did feel that way. With Chichester, um, it's the well-heeled, you know, God's waiting room. When I first went there, that's how I felt about it. But actually, it's a very vibrant place because it um, is—it's an astonishing area. I've never
1: been, so I don't know. Chichester
0: Harbour is just jaw-dropping. The yes, it is all very
3: lovely we are we it are is. extremely fortunate
0: and then <laughs> and you've got you've got the fire the creative fire um of lord march or now the duke of richmond at goodwood who who brought so much energy and money into the area and and sort of panache i think is the way i would describe it
1: perfume
0: one. it is a perfume <laughs> yes but he brought flair to the whole thing i know he he created a lot of enemies for bringing fast motorcars back to the circuit. But, um, yeah. Well, the
3: the Festival of Speed and then the revival meeting where people dress up for the 50s or the 30s.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. They are
3: incredible achievements. And we, where we live, Mm. we can hear those events going on for the weekend. (laughs) But it would be very curmudgeonly to say that this is a bad thing. Mm. it brings so much employment enjoyment and excitement it's wonderful yeah. and it's yeah. not yeah. the weekend is it
0: yeah it, no. uh, well you know and, and those i mean i used to cover those events and i went to the very first revival meeting i, I my my sort of uh, journalistic life was uh dominated by the story of would he be able to reopen the circuit and and you know talking both sides of the, the argument the the neighbors saying, you know, it shouldn't be allowed and all this sort of thing. We, we didn't move here because, you know, blah, blah, blah. if we, if we get this noise, we'll have to move away and all that stuff. Um, it wasn't the most amazing emotional occasion. And I'll, I'll just, sorry to, to break in with an anecdote, but this, this, this is um, something I, I, I treasure this memory. I was there for the revival meeting and I was it being, I was introduced to Sir Jackie Stewart and, um, and then Ken Tyrrell, who was the, team owner uh, that had been the team owner of Jackie Stewart's successful three championships and all that sort of thing then the the really emotional kicker bit was the clerk of the course from that period who had phoned Ken Tyrrell to say that he was seeing Jackie Stewart come down from Scotland and was driving around setting amazing lap times no one had ever heard of this kid he phoned up Ken Tyrrell and said I found one for you Huh. And that's how their relationship started, and they oh, had seen each other for over thirty years. And there they were, all of them. And so Jackie Stewart's as hard as nails, even though he's lovely. They were all crying, Aww. and I had my microphone in the middle of this conversation, <laughs> and I will never forget it. Wonderful, it was just amazing. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah, just just one of those things. And I'm just a kid from BBC Southern Counties Radio at the time.
1: With a big flop of ginger hair, probably. With a big flop
0: of ginger hair. <laughs> <laughs> a, a terrible Alan Partridge, uh, racing green blazer. Um,
3: <laughs> I need one of those.
0: <laughs> I didn't have the blazer badge, but uh, no, no, it was it was an, an amazing moment. And so Chichester spends, you know, it's a, a, an important part of my life, albeit I had to live in Bognor Regis to work there. So that was the, the, the downside, but never mind. Uh, right. Poor Bognor. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to, um, let's get to the... Uh, the to, the, to, the, to the crux of this yeah. interview, I mean, you look, Greg, you've, you've shared so much wisdom and, and, and um, fabulous knowledge and but I'm sure moment. inspired many people listening to this. But now's the point they've really been waiting for, which is, <laughs> like let me give the build-up. Rebecca's random question.
1: If you could be reborn as a scientist, what branch of science would you specialise in and why?
3: Oh, it's really good. I, I wonder... Could I could I be permitted to be reborn into the future?
1: Yes, yes. why not?
3: Because I think that the the challenges that we're facing, all, all of us, um, of um, refugee populations, water shortages causing people to lose their homes, wildfires, desertification. Um, these are all obviously linked to environmental degradation. Yeah. And I don't think that, I mean, I I don't think there's anything more important that I could do than to find ways, whether that's geoengineering or, um, or alternative energy sources or, um, hydrology, you know, water management. One of those fields has to be what you would want, where you would, where you could make the most significant achievements. And in part, of course. I say that because Kate and I have recently become grandparents. So we're now no longer thinking about our lives and our children's lives, 2050, 2070, we're now thinking about the year 2100. And what will the Earth look like then? So that, that's my answer to your excellent that's a great question.
1: Answer. That's a
0: great answer. It was a great question too.
1: For me, I want to be a behavioural neuroscience and understand people's brains.
0: Wow. Do it. Okay. There's still time. <laughs> There's, yeah, I mean, look.
1: you got three degrees. I don't think I can go back.
0: Oh. <laughs> uh, and in my case, I would like to be in a position, because my father was a scientist, so I would love, and I was hopeless. I, I, I absolutely flunked all of the, the O-levels in science the first time round. I was terrible. Uh, so I'd just love to be in a position where I understood enough science to be able to have a conversation as a peer
1: with your dad? With
0: my dad on that. I well, mean, I can talk about all sorts of other subjects, especially history. We're on, we're on a level. But
1: your dad knows a lot about everything, though. His dad is a very, very intelligent person. And but I sit nice. there and I just go, oh, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. He, he, his brain is, is extraordinary. Um, but uh, I, I, I've never been able to even remotely meet him a fraction of the way with what he was working on with the science, in Cambridge yeah. uh, with all these Nobel laureates around him um and that is a sadness to me that that my brain doesn't understand and doesn't compute this stuff and um and actually it was an area of conflict in my youth because he could not understand how his son could not do the very basics of physics chemistry (laughs) and biology Uh, and I couldn't. I just simply couldn't. I just don't have that brain.
1: No, you're a creative head. Yeah. Not a so that would, Good. I, that
0: would be where I... I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to help the world, but it would certainly help me feel a lot more comfortable with my life. So that's what I'm
1: going. on your side in your spare time. Yeah,
0: I'm sure I could. I'm sure I could. Uh, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really has. And uh, we wish you every success Thank with you. the novel, which comes out on November the 10th. And uh, that is... Going to be fantastic, and, and all the
1: novels that you haven't come up with yet are yeah. in your head. <laughs>
0: uh, and uh, we really look forward to also speaking to Kate. We have made arrangements for next week, have we not? Tentative,
1: yes. yes, tentative arrangements.
0: <laughs> Good. It's been a complete
3: pleasure. Lovely way uh, to 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 spend a lunchtime. And um, I, uh, from from my side, I think that um, over these last twenty years or so, there's been conglomeration in publishing, hasn't there? Sure. Publishing has become less nimble, less agile. And companies like Hoback put the agility back into publishing. And I think you're doing an incredibly valuable job. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: That's very
0: sweet of you to say. Um, well, we hope so. C-
1: can we record that and play it every day when we're feeling a bit down?
0: <laughs> we will. Because <laughs> the, the creative process is never straight. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg. And uh, as I say, uh, The Coming Darkness is coming out very soon and we can't wait to... Re- I, when it flops on my doorstep i'm really looking forward to that
3: <laughs> terrific thank you very much
0: lovely to speak to greg moss and we can now exclusively reveal that we are speaking to his other half kate moss
1: we this, are for our next the week's, next week's show. show yeah
0: and she has a new book out which um is looking at the uh i guess that i'm redacting it a little bit but the sort of feminine icons of history mm. so it's a non-fiction book but um this uh, is, she's touring the UK at the moment, promoting the book, and she's coming to speak to us. Yeah, so, in fact, she
1: was touring last week.
0: She was, she was, and uh, we can't wait to speak to her. Again, you know, a powerhouse couple of, of British literary scene.
1: Just like us.
0: Well, and, and, you know, let's not also forget, she's also the vice chair of the National Theatre, amongst other things. So, you know, she really knows her stuff, and uh, it's a great honour to have her on the show which uh, we can't wait. So that is Kate Moss. We've got some great shows coming up. Uh, we've been invited to take part in a uh, another event in the library, Halifax.
1: Oh, yes. So on the 10th of December, if you're in Halifax, well, you need to get a ticket. Tickets are free. Um, so this is being organised by the lovely R.C. Brigstock. Bridgestock. Brid- I do apologise. The reason I, I, I stumble is because when I worked at OUP, I worked with an author who was a very large personality called Hugh Brigstock. Yeah. And he famously, when we sent him his cover design for his book, which was the Oxford History of Western Art, he Blimey. rang me up and he said, over my dead body are you publishing my book with a naked body on the front? Because it was about Western art, so there was a nude painting.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, that's scarred you for life. <laughs> a, over my dead body.
1: And he, <clears> he threatened <throat> to go to the top. And then so I went to the top to warn the top that Arthur was going to contact him. And the top said, it's an art book. What does he expect?
0: (laughs) Smart. (laughs) Filth in front of my cover. Oh, wonderful. Well, yes, Bob and Carol Bridgestock uh, are organising this event and we're delighted to be invited and taking part. So the 10th of December for tickets to uh, Halifax Noir? What's it called? Noir, I can't remember. Yeah,
1: no, no, it's Halifax Noir, but it's taking place in um, the Peace... Peace Hall. The Peace Hall, so yeah, in the we, library next to the Peace Hall. We
0: had a fantastic visit there just after we went to Harrogate for Harrogate Noir. It was just brilliant. And um, you're going to have to stop me from buying more caricatures from the man who sells caricatures. Yes, in I one am, aren't I? Yeah, because it's <laughs> just a brilliant shop. So I've got a lovely one of Clive James, which is uh, looking across. And one of John Morse's, as, sorry, John Thor as Morse, uh, I picked up there. Um, and uh, I just love them so uh, yeah brilliant can't wait for that so in the week to come well next week
1: we're publishing a book
0: we are we are so uh, we're going to be talking to at some point
1: well would why why well he's already been on the podcast this is rob gittins okay the devil's devil bridge affair
0: well he will appear on the show to talk about a little bit about what this latest book is uh, it's brilliant set in wales
1: Yes, and, and timely for the spooky time of year because it's, it's it's the psychological thriller, but it's also sort of it's got a level of mythology and folklore in it as well, and it's all about people and the effect a the mythology has on the people. So
0: yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's terrific. Um, it's about those those levels of consequences and um, legacy that he talked about when he spoke to us in his big interview mm-hmm. with, when we released "I'm Not There." Not so long ago. So The Devil's Bridge Affair coming out from Rob. And uh, and then we will be talking to Maureen Mayant in the very near future, I imagine.
1: Yes, because her book is actually publishing two weeks after Rob. So. That's
0: called The Confession. So that's one to look out for. Don't forget uh, to check out all of our news and, and stuff on our social media channels, but also on our website, www.hobeck.net. In terms of this week, it's half term. So we have to sort of weave in... Various things you need to do with kids at half term, like buying new shoes or take, visit, uh, taking them to see elderly relatives, or <laughs> all those sort of things that have, that, that are obligatory. Uh, and trying to make something of a week with iffy weather, um, which you know, goodness knows what it's going to do this week. Uh, but yeah, that's...
1: I mean, if you look at today, for example, it was absolutely pouring of rain when we woke up, but look at the skies now. Well, it's,
0: I mean, you know, <laughs> the approach roads to our to our village were completely flooded um and you know that's one of the reasons i bought the four by four because I just needed to be able to get in and out which we couldn't do uh a couple of you know when we first moved here it was really really difficult at times the, some of the floods but it was uh yeah floods everywhere <laughs> it was quite spectacular in fact at one stage i decided to be a real boy and uh i was taking toby to to uh, have his golf lesson and when we got back i said right we're going through this puddle at you know, and I put my foot down from the standing start, and just the, the wash over our car was huge, but it was fun.
1: I think we should also tell everybody that we we've tried a, a, a new healthy diet this <laughs> last week. So last Saturday when we were in Brighton, we met up. I think we we talked about this on the podcast. We met up with a, an old friend of yours from yeah, your school with days, Aunt. Yeah, and so Aunt was passionate about this diet that mm. he'd adopted. Him and his wife and it was a um high low, fat
0: low low carb high diet. fat
1: low carb diet so the keto thing that you see mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so we thought we'd try at least to some degree this diet didn't we and well i think
0: it's all in, you have to be all in or not um but yes we've 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 adapted our diets well
1: we, week, we cut down it? quite significantly on carbs yeah big so time. but yeah. i really enjoyed it you know it was great flavours and mm. salads and the meat and, and eggs for breakfast i loved it that is until friday <laughs>
0: Don't go any further.
1: So you talk about the blockages at Waterstones,
0: right? Okay. I had the I'm getting, same problem. <laughs> I'm getting the picture. I'm getting the what picture. What do you mean?
1: You get the picture? You were there.
0: I know, I know, but I'm just trying to sort of um, protect the audience from that thought. <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about bowels in this this particular uh, episode of the Hobcast.
1: So it's all sorted now. I'd like to say, but I had a difficult day on Friday, and I was trying to work, but I just couldn't concentrate. It's really strange. No, I couldn't it's very focus. Difficult.
0: No, absolutely. I think a lot of people were with you on that one. <laughs> But let's not, let's not delve too deeply.
1: So next week, we're, we're, we're going to balance it. We're going to eat healthily, but with a little bit more reality.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast Book Show, wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd uh, greatly appreciate that. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. And from the cat who didn't make an appearance this week. No. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And we wish you a wonderful and...
1: Creative.
0: ...week. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobec Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code Hobcast20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback until next time remember our motto trad values indie spirit